So you sign your email Steve, but in conversation you go by Stephen. I, so I actually go by both. Um, I don't generally notice which one someone else is using, which other people sometimes find confusing, unfortunately. Because <laughs> I, you know, I, I asked just because not not out of idle curiosity uh, or or even morbid curiosity, but uh, but being a Joe, uh, the Joe Joseph thing is something that I, I went through at an earlier period in my life, and I I do sign things with that full name. But I, in fact, I use my really full name because Joe Miller is extremely common, and Joseph Miller is right behind it. But um, but yeah, no one calls me Joseph in conversation. Hmm. I, I had a friend who used to, um, and um, he passed away, unfortunately. But, um, but uh, yeah, no one calls me that. And no one calls you J-Mill? <laughs> no, no. Huh, huh. And, but both of you then, your, your kind of, your shortened name is, is, is a truly lesser included name of your larger name. Yeah, so we know the Marx rule for our names, right? That <laughs> we can right. actually figure that out. <laughs> though, though I, I, you have Stephen with a PH, so it's actually not clear what's the narrowest ground. Uh, oh, true. right. Yeah. So are you Steph? Uh, well, isn't there a Steph Curry who plays basketball or something? There um, is. Right? So there he is. goes by Steph, right? And, and there was a Steve Sachs uh, who was doing very well uh, as a second baseman for the Dodgers the year I was in kindergarten. Oh. Hmm. It all comes around, doesn't it? So, so I, this... I, I have to say, I feel very grateful that there's not like. You know, you know, kids who like you know, where someone famous came along after and all of a sudden your name is associated with that. Like, uh, I, that's never happened to me. There is no famous Christian there, Turner. Well, I mean, I, hate, I don't want to be, you know, I, I don't want to insult all the other Christian Turners. There, there was <laughs> there, there was this guy who took a nail to the head in Arizona. Oh, my. On CNN, a Christian Turner, which is quite interesting. And um, so CNN was there filming and he just so happened to get a nail in his no, head? No, I think, I think they were filming the... the uh, it had the, happened and they were yeah, talking to him. Okay. They were looking at the x-rays and all that. There's a Joe Miller who's a congressperson up in Alaska, isn't there, Joe? Uh, he ran for Senate okay. uh, uh, against uh, Lisa Murkowski. Uh, and, and it's interesting because a, a guy having one of the most common names in the world gets beaten by a write-in candidate uh, in a system where if you don't spell her name correctly, the vote doesn't count. Oh, and, wow. and Lisa Murkowski oh. still beat him like a drum. <laughs> <laughs> which is sort of amazing. Well, it's good that we're, we started off with this because this, of course, is going to be the topic of the show today. <laughs> Welcome, Stephen Sachs from Duke. Um, so Here. your paper, Finding Law, um, is... Okay, so I have a few things to say, Christian. Um, yeah. One is, um, it, it, Christian's been saying, Stephen, for the last few episodes that, that this show, unbeknownst to me, has been a, an extended... <laughs> Uh, therapy experience for me like that's somehow what it has all turned out to be and i didn't believe that until i sat down to read this paper Ooh. now i <laughs> all right i gotta I, hear this right so i i had uh you know of course the, the moment that i saw it i think oh this we got to talk about this this is fascinating just reading uh, you know a page or two um but but yeah i'm shook man <laughs> um this, this is a this is a very very interesting paper and not only because uh the citations are just over the top fantastic. Mm. Uh, and I want to, in case anyone doesn't realize this, um, you know, there are law review papers that have cited Mean Girls. And there are law review papers that have cited David Foster Wallace's tense present, mm -hmm. but there are none until now that cite both. Ooh. So this is unique in world history. Did you, did you check this out? I mean, oh, did you of course I did. This? Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so this is amazing. I, can I make an opening statement? Sure, sure. Um, opening statement. We've never had those before. I feel like we need to have an input. This is like a John Syracuse thing, but okay. I, this is my opening statement, and it's very brief. Uh, I also thought it was a really fascinating paper. 
And there are parts of it that I that I feel like totally in the groove with, you know, like the the part about there's nothing special about law. We'll get into this exactly what this means, but like that, like the 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 uh, continuity with other normative institutions is, as you know, Joe. Like yes. this is right up my alley. This, that's that's the moment I saw this paper. Right. I'm like, this is oral argument catnip. And then there are other parts of the paper that I am like resistant to and had to be dragged through, like you know, not not, not quite kicking and screaming. We'll we'll talk about it, right? right. But the, but like what it means to find law and like I'm kind of a realist, but also a um, which this paper very much pushes back against. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, but also someone who doesn't see anything uh, like like qualitatively special about legal institutions as against other normative institutions. And the way this marries these things that I have always taken for granted is not true with the things that I believe are true is, you know, creates quite the explosion in my mind. Yeah. So, so you too are shook. I guess so. I'm exploded, I think I just said. But <laughs> <laughs> So, Steve, what got you interested in this line of thinking specifically about Erie as a way to, to work through this question, is law made or found by judges? Is it, is it plausible to think that what judges are doing is finding law, not making and law? And just say that again, because I think the listeners right from the beginning need to know what the show is about and need to know what the article is about, right? And that's, you know, is it, is it possible it's a plausible possible that judges could be in, could engage in an exercise of finding law rather than making it right the realist critique is they're always making it the crits are they're always making it for particular reasons right but uh, and and this idea that what judges are doing is looking at legal materials and finding law like finding the real law in some way like that's been increasingly over time since the realist ridiculed and and Stephen is really rehabilitating it here and that's what this is about i think yeah Thank, thank you both very much. I, I really appreciate that. And I, I, it's interesting because the reactions I get to the paper tend to be split between people who say that, you know, this is trivially true and this is obviously false. So that's <laughs> going to be. Um, I, uh, I'm not sure exactly when I started thinking about this stuff. When I was an undergrad, I majored in medieval history because that's the career field of the future and uh, ended up writing a thesis paper on the law merchant and on mercantile law in the Middle Ages, about which people make all sorts of uh, extravagant claims that it was completely independent of state enforcement, that it was completely uniform across all of Europe and so on and so forth. And um, at the time, my exposure to uh, Swift and the taxicab case in Erie was through that lens. And I was, you know, reading Holmes was sort of cheering right along, you know, yes, of course you can't have this, you know, custom from these merchants who come in and, you know, give orders to Westminster and how can that work? Um, it's got to be something that the judges are doing, not that just sort of emerges from other things. But I think the experience of going to law school, uh, you know, to use a phrase, woke me up from my dogmatic slumbers and uh, started to see how, in fact, we do stuff like this all the time, that it's not that strange to find a norm in general use and that a lot of legal norms actually look like this. I teach civil procedure, I teach conflict of laws. And so there are a lot of questions that suddenly start making a lot more sense once you have this kind of law in the picture. Uh, And then the uh, question really becomes, you know, is it possible to have a society that only does, uh, you know, law that is unwritten law that is run by judges rather than made and that leaves its written law up to the legislature to create. Now, you caution against confusing the psychological with the logical. So I don't want to do that. But I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of wondering, like, 
when you when you say we we sort of feel all the time like we're finding a thing, I wonder if that's if that's quite right yet. If that's quite so, if I think about you know the fact that there are, I, I agree that that I feel and I and it looks as if other people feel um, regularly that we are um, judging facts according to a normative framework that is bigger than us as individuals. You're talking about law now. I'm talking about all kinds of situations. Okay. Law is one of them, but, but uh, or may, may be one of them. Let's leave that a question mark for now. But, but in terms of the things you mentioned, etiquette, grammar, um, other social contexts where I don't feel like I'm finding it. I also don't feel like I'm making it. I feel like I'm aware of that there are norms and that I'm acting accordingly. But I think right? the question I'm sort is of a, acting as if there are norms that are intersubjective, that are shared widely in a group of humans. But I think, and Stephen, you know, jump in, that, that what you have found is what the norm is, but you have a further decision to make about how to comply with that norm within whatever bounds it specifies. Yeah, if it's problematized at all, like, I think it's so much of it just goes on below awareness. But, but if, you're, if something about it makes you have to stop and think a moment, mm. um, yeah, it's not, I, I don't feel like it's either finding or making. I feel like it's applying. Like, I'm, I'm just sort of, I'm doing what, my, what it makes sense to do, right? And I wonder if there's sort of a, a tacit evolutionary biology story behind all of this. Like, if we weren't the sort of beings that did this readily. Pattern matching. Would we have lived this long? Like we beat out the animals that couldn't do this because the world's so complicated that if you can't do this stuff, you're toast, right? This sort of recognizing that there are norms, acting accordingly, um, that's, what, that's what makes you survive in a world where you have to be cooperating at very sophisticated levels to make it. Hmm. I mean, I, I think that's certainly possible. I think that the real finding-making distinction as it tends to come up in the legal context uh, tends to have a lot to do with what makes this norm that I've noticed uh, the law. And if I'm uncertain about something, how do I, um, what is it about the different candidate rules that make one sort of the correct one as opposed to anything else? If you think about uh, cultural norms that way. If I'm going to be traveling to a foreign country and meeting with businessmen there, and I might get a guidebook that will say, oh, here are the six things never to do in a meeting with businessmen from country X. Um, there's some sense in which these are things that can be learned about. And there are things that would make that true or false that are different from the way that uh, norm gets authoritatively laid down within a particular system. Um, so I feel like the the Finding making distinction is still very important, even if most of the time we don't really need to do very much work to educate ourselves about the law uh, or educate ourselves about the norm. It's just something that that you know is immediately present to us. So, so what's going on? So let's take the normative context of of going out to dinner at maybe not a super fancy place, but a you know a reasonably nice place. And there are all kinds of things that we just take for granted that we do or don't do, right? Like we wear shoes, <laughs> we wear shirts. Uh, we probably don't eat with our hands unless, uh, it's the kind of place, you know, maybe we're having Ethiopian or something where, where that is, but, but, you know, all that is a matter of figuring. So what's, what's going on there in, what does it mean to find like, or to have found the norm as to, as against kind of 
you know, in taking in a lot of data and making decisions about, you know, a lot of like small decisions that I may not even be aware of about how to comply with certain norms and when to transgress them or what's important or what's not important. Do you know what I mean? Like, what do you think is going on in the finding process? I'm trying to trying to nail down the term finding a little bit more because I, in the back of my mind, I'm wondering whether the realist critique about finding law refers to a slightly different kind of finding than what you're referring to. Whether it's referring to the epistemic process of how we learn about it as opposed to what makes that the norm? Yeah, I mean, so, well, it's, it's almost like it has two sides to it. There's, there's this finding that, like, going out to dinner would be, how do I find out about how people generally behave in that situation, how they have in the past, how they're likely to behave now? Maybe there's all kinds of stuff going on, but there's also this decision about, you know, what I should do, and it's, which is... May, you could say, well, there's the finding part, and then there is the, once you've found what the norm is for eating in a restaurant, then you, you can make a choice about whether to comply with that norm or not. Uh, so there's the application phase. But I wonder if they're not a little bit closer together. Um, but anyway, I, I just want... Well, I, think we yeah. need an exa- I think we need an example of, of because I, I take uh, Stephen's point that, um, but although in a lot of cases the, the distinction won't matter, finding, making... There will be cases where, or there'll be instances where it is, it genuinely matters which one you're doing or which one you think you're doing. So in the case of the restaurant, right, you said, and I think this is right, people would know to wear shoes. Um, but, okay, so are open, so open-toed sandals shoes or not in the context of the norm about wearing shoes uh, to a restaurant? That's not, you know, a, a Michelin uh, four, but, uh, but it also isn't, you know, Chipotle. So Stephen, how would you, what do you think about the, the case of a person wondering whether they should wear open-toed sandals, their Tevas or whatever? Right. So I think that the, the first thing that people often do if they want to find out about something like that is look around and see what everyone else is wearing. Um, you know, we make judgments about, you know, am I under or overdressed in part by looking around and having some, you know, pre-existing knowledge of what kinds of dress norms there are. And so what would be evidence that a particular dress norm is in effect in a particular place. And that, of course, can be, you know, separate from the application part because there, you know, you might say, yeah, I'm probably underdressed for this restaurant, but I should go anyway because I don't have time to change and I promised someone I would be there and so on. Um, that would be a, a, a different kind of decision than just trying to find out what the norm is. You could also, you know, see the maitre d' throw someone out. Um, and that also would be useful information. And to some extent, you could say, you know, the dress norms are whatever the maitre d' says they are. You know, that could be the case in particular restaurants, but I think it's also the case that you might view the maitre d' as having at least their job is to apply the norms that are already in effect rather than to compose new ones. And when they get to a situation that's uncertain where they're not really sure whether something violates the norm or whether it violates the norm enough to justify throwing the customer out, there could be difficult decisions there. I mean, the the idea that law is mechanistic is very separate from the idea this from that law is something that can in general be found what if i'm i'm kind of uh, between two communities so suppose i'm i run around with a with a group which is kind of countercultural and has a certain mode of dress to kind of signify membership in that in that group and 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 has broader social social messaging attached to it but i'm also uh, i've been invited out by family to a really nice restaurant and People in my group who have gone to that restaurant have made kind of statements before by wearing clothes, which other people would consider underdressed. And so it's been kind of a forum for people to signal 
uh, their feelings about things. And I'm trying to decide what the norm is. And of course, the problem is that I'm finding conflicting messages, right? I'm finding uh, one norm from the community of which I'm a part that says I should, you know, maybe wear no shoes at all and a t-shirt to a place where most people would wear suits, but maybe members of my group showed up before not in suits. And but I'm also a member of my family, which has certain expectations. So what is, in that situation, I, I have to decide what to do. And in, and in the course of deciding what to do, of course, I have to find, uh, in a social situation, if I want to decide what to do, I have to find the norms that, that tend to govern those social situations and then make decisions, you know, evaluative decisions about, about how I care about them. But like, in the process of finding, aren't I also engaging in this kind of balance of principles, which... I have competing principles because I'm a member of two groups. So I'm, I'm not sure that you're doing the, you're, you're doing some kind of evaluation, but I'm not sure doing the same kind of evaluative balancing. Um, you know, the example I give in the paper is that, look, lots of people wear lots of different stuff on the Manhattan subway, but we generally have some understanding of which people are dressed professionally. That's a norm of a particular subset of the, you know, population of Manhattan, but it's one that everyone else to some extent shares to the in the sense that they can figure out that sort of, yes, that's the dominant hegemonic norm if you're going somewhere uh, hoity-toity informal. The question of which community's norms you want to apply there, I think, is somewhat different from just trying to get a sense of, okay, I'm a member of several overlapping communities at the same time, and which norms should I apply in this situation? That can happen all the time. I mean, you're a member of you know, a religious group and of the bridge club and you're a citizen of the United States and those, the various duties that attach to those various roles might conflict in various ways. And some of them might not be real duties at all. They might, you know, the rules of the bridge club are just what the bridge club says. And, um, it might not have any real normative force for you at all. Uh, the question of what to do in that situation when they all conflict seems to me a question that's, faces people every day, but maybe outside the question of trying to figure out what the different norms are in the first place. Well, what if we complicate it just a little bit? And suppose I'm going to a, a, a meeting of, of, I don't know, CEOs or, or, or professionals. And now you might assume everybody's going to be in a suit, but suppose I'm in, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley or somewhere like that. And, and there are indeed some suit wearing people and they think that is what the norm is. And, you know, they think that, and there are other people who, who, uh, who dress in what I might call regular clothes and think that dressing up in suits is kind of ridiculous and clownish, right? And, and so there is a, there, there's a distinction among the people in the group about what the norm of, of, of dress is. There I'm going to, you know, when I do this finding process, I'm going to find both, right? And I'm going to associate either norm of dress with these different communities. And I'll say that, and, and I might observe that there are different reasons why those norms have developed in those different communities. I'll just observe that there's a clash of of norms. I found both. And, and so that's not necessarily inconsistent with anything that you write here. I'm, I'm able to find both norms. I then have to make a decision about, about what to do. And I guess the reason I'm asking this is, what if that's the case with almost every you know, important legal decision, right? That, that indeed you will find norms which point in different directions because they recapitulate kind of basic disagreements that have been there all along. So I think a lot of work is being done by the, by the word important. Uh, there are are an awful lot of legal decisions that are, you know, very important in some sense, but that flow pretty naturally from, uh, existing norms. There are others where it's really hard to know either which of two norms to apply or how a single norm would 
apply to this particular fact situation. And, you know, appellate courts are going to tend to encounter the kinds of things that generate questions because otherwise, you know, otherwise no one would have brought the case or otherwise no one's going to appeal. That's one of the reasons why it's always a little dangerous to infer from sort of the behavior of appellate courts to, to the real structure of the system, because in large part, they're doing the cleanup work. Uh, one of the things that I note in the paper is that you can have situations where you're not sure what to do. And one further question that the legal system might answer is, OK, well, what do you do with the ultimate resolution of those questions? You could say um, to the grader of the AP exam, is this really is this split infinitive really bad enough to take points off? Is is the social norm really well set enough to say that that's a lapse of grammar or syntax? Or to the judge, is the social norm of uh, this usage of trade really clear enough to matter under the UCC for contract interpretation? And you can have differing judgments there. And then there are other questions about once they've made that judgment, what uh, consequences does it have? Does it actually change the rule for the future? Does it add to the body of social practice so that it might have the causal effect of changing the rule for the future in the sort of make fetch happen kind of way? Or is it just something that we use in the interstices the way that you might use stare decisis to say, hey, in you know uncertain cases, we do this, but if there's a settled practice to the contrary, then we wouldn't. Um, and there are lots of different ways that different legal systems can handle that kind of problem. Not getting distracted by or dis, not not having one's view or one's vision distorted by uh, the the selected work of appellate courts, uh, you know that I think that's a a, a great point. Uh, on the other hand, you know e, e, that's what Erie's all about is which appellate court should do what and why uh, when there's more than one that that might take the lead. Of uh, so the fact that in law as experienced in the appellate court context in the United States, what we tend to see are the, perhaps, are the, are the places where um, there are pretty strong arguments pointing in multiple directions. That's, that's a way to characterize what we're likely to see in that group of stuff. You know, when we're asking the make-find question in appellate law, I mean, is, that is what, a lot of what we're going to see, right, is the stuff where things are pointing in multiple directions. The questions that the paper asks are really twofold. It's can judges find law in some cases? And then secondly, must they make law in other cases? Could, could finding law be all they do? Mm. And on the second part, a lot depends on what we say, uh, what we make of the decision once it's already made. So it's surely true that you can have very hard cases where all the legal materials that you're given, including these you know, legal norms that you're trying to find, point in very different directions, and it's very hard to know what to do. And you could have judges even try to supply some decision procedures. So you think about the uh, rules for venue transfer, which I teach in CivPro, and we have this complicated multi-factor test for when a, a venue transfer is justified because the statute just talks about things like the interest of justice and the convenience of parties and witnesses. And it's entirely possible for a judge, a conscientious judge who's trying to reach the right decision given these vague instructions to come up with a somewhat more discrete list of the factors that they think are important in trying to answer this question in accordance with the norms that are on the table. But it's not really clear that when they're doing that, they're actually making law in the sense that they are supplying a new norm that somehow supplants 
what the legal norms available already were that changes the nature of the question. There could be a rule of the legal system like stare decisis that says once they've done this, you give it a certain amount of credit whether or not you think it's right. Um, and that would, you know, that's what I call sort of the as if kind of law. You know, you treat it as if that were the correct resolution, um, even if you're skeptical. Uh, but so long as we recognize a distinction between what the statute actually commands or what the social legal norms actually command and the way that a particular court or a particular other legal decision maker is trying to apply and resolve them, uh, it doesn't strike me that, that we have to regard that that episode as one of making law so much as making a decision under uncertainty, which is something that legal officials have to do all the time. Yeah, the distinction there, because this is, a, a, I thought, one of the more complicated parts of the paper, is that um, a decision about how to um, fashion a test derived from a statute is not law in the same way that the statute is law. And the, the kind of the takeaway from that is that the that that new fashion test is revisable in a way that that the law emanating from the statute, you know, to the extent that's a thing, is not revisable except by the legislature. Do I have that about right? I mean, it's yes. A, yeah. At the same and the example, the easiest examples are statutory, but you could also have an unwritten norm. So take the norm that the owner of the principal also owns the interest. Right. Um. I. I can't think of one offhand, but you can imagine some unclear situation where it's not it's not clear how to apply that in practice. And you can imagine a court making a decision, you know, fashioning a test to figure out how it thinks the best way of trying to, to carry that uh, that decision out would be. That test would also would not be law in quite the same way that the unwritten norm is law, though, of course, it could still catch on and sort of become an unwritten law and an unwritten norm in its own right. So we're, what's the generative? Um, I was going to take the law of negligence, if that's what you're asking. No, no. Um, uh, so I, I, if, I, if, I, if I am trying to understand this, uh, the, the notion of finding, it's, it seems to me it is still important to have a sense of who's making it. If it isn't me, who is it? And it, it, you know, the candidate, nobody, doesn't, doesn't sound particularly appealing. Maybe the candidate is everybody. Right. So is the act of finding, can the act of finding itself be generative of the, the thing the next time someone finds it? Can it be both? I'm both making and finding. I'm finding the thing I'm, uh, that others have made, and in the process, I myself am making. So I, th I think it's important to be clear on different notions of making here. You can make something by causally bringing it about, and you can make something by enacting it, and the two can come apart. You can enact something that doesn't catch on and so fails, and you can cause something to be without having any sort of role of enactment. So, you know, if George W. Bush uses the word strategery and, you know, along with Will Ferrell, then it can become a word that goes into the Oxford English Dictionary and that people actually use unironically. You know, there was no sort of enactment process there. Uh, he just sort of, by using it, it became popular. In the same way, uh, you know, a court, even a district court, one with no stare decisis effect given to its decisions, uh, can issue an influential decision on a question of unwritten law, and then that could causally sort of become the standard that other people coalesce around and become the new norm that everyone accepts. But 
Whether that happens or not, that's sort of a, a follow-on effect after the decision. After the decision, it's not a legal uh, effect of the decision, or it's not something that's sort of constituted by the fact that the court reached that decision on that particular occasion. But but there, it's not it's not necessary that that court engaged itself in finding, right? I mean, later courts may find the law in what that court decided, but that court may have they may find that that they may have found it for reasons it found persuasive, which have nothing to do with whether the original court found, right? So the the idea here is that the original court found a bunch of norms, wasn't quite sure how to apply them, and fashioned some test for doing so that it thought was a, a good way of responding to those norms. Um, and then the question is, what do other people, including other courts, make of it later? Uh, and those t- seem to me... Uh, Two very different things. So one thing that might help me is if we, how would you most crisply distinguish your idea of finding from Dworkin's, right? So, so Dworkin's right. theory involves finding, right? Because it's the, the fit part of fit and justification involves identifying the principles that, that emanate from the law in some way, making an interpretation of legal data and finding principles in it. I mean, so there's a lot of finding in there, right? And then we have to, you know, the, I think Dworkin imagines that these principles can point in different directions and, and even be somewhat contradictory. They have weight, they have to be weighed against each other, and we make a decision which best fits these things together in a way that, uh, makes, the, that, that makes the legal system of the legal system the best that it can be in the it's a great sense question. of question. I, I was thinking of this question myself, which is why I think it's a great question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that that fit, sort of where is the Dworkin part? Because it's one of the few... He's one of the few sort of principal expositors of important thoughts in this area that isn't mentioned in the paper. Right. In part, uh, that's for at least two reasons. One is that I was trying in the paper to write mostly within the positivist tradition, because I think in some ways the argument is is too easy if you go outside that. It's very easy to see how we could find things as opposed to make them if we're going outside social facts, because there are lots of things outside social facts like morality that we don't get to make. And so it would be, um, you know, it, it might be argued that it's, it's too simple to argue that, that um, finding law is possible on those grounds. The second reason is just that I'm not entirely sure I understand Dworkin as well as I think I ought to. In particular, I'm not really sure whether fit and justification are sort of two separate stages of the process or whether they you know, have to operate at the same time in certain ways and whether in order to know how well something fits the existing legal system, one needs to know the assumed normative framework under which candidate rules would be justified. Well, I I think that, you know, for Dworkin, all this arises from the idea that we strive and wish to be a community governed by principle. And are the decisions that we make today are justified based on our understanding of those principles. And so I, I look back to the past not to find 100% constraining rules. In other words, when I look back in the past at prior decisions and other legal materials and perhaps you know, even events, I mean, so he has, a, I think, a wide understanding of what can contribute to a decision now. What I won't find is a straitjacket. I will find what those, how, what those principles have been and how they have changed over time. And I'm trying to make a decision that makes the best of our current political morality, which can be informed by lots of things. So there is, you know, and, and that's, you know, maybe I don't understand Dworkin as well as I, as I should either. I'm, in fact, I'm sure that I don't. But there is this, so, so that's what I'm trying to figure out with your sense of finding, whether it is a backwards looking process that finds, maybe outside hard cases, uh, 
finds a, a kind of a straitjacketing rule. And so judges' job is to find that thing which constrains them, or whether judges' jobs are like Hercules, to find principles and then you know, make, of those, make of the combination of those principles the best that they can in light of current notions of justice and fairness. So I think the approach can be backward looking without it necessarily producing straitjackets. I mean, you could look back to find a common law maxim that, you know, no man shall profit by his own wrong, but that doesn't necessarily uh, determine concrete cases very easily, including the question of the person who kills his own grandfather to inherit. Um, You might not know whether that common law maxim is enough to answer the case, given the existence of a statute and various other uh, rules that are also in the system. So there can be lots of different instructions in the system that still require an enormous amount of work to sort through and see and, and to sort of jointly attempt to satisfy. But but if we look at if we if we look at public enemy number one for the realists, the Lochner decision, right? And mm-hmm. and we look at the major critique there, of course, is that you aren't uh, majority, you are not finding law which already exists, you are exercising some choice, you've chosen to sign on to Herbert Spencer's social statistics, right? That is your view of the world. And you are using the language of, of law and reason to impose what is really a, a kind of political preference on, on others. And, and, you know, maybe this is an example of a hard case, but how, how would finding work in a case like that? For Dworkin, there might, you know, you, the, Hercules may well find principles which, uh, of freedom of contract, right? But Hercules would probably also find other principles and then engage in this process of, of trying to balance and, and, and use these principles in a, kind of, in a way that makes the most of our current notions of justice and fairness and, and may well come out in the way that Holmes did in that case. But is that the way your finding would work? Do you know what I mean? I don't know if I've st- said it very well. I'm just wondering how, whether finding is going to uh, result in, you know, will it result in Lochner or not? Like, how does a, how does a judge get out of that? <laughs> Yes. Right. Well, I, I that's, think, that's the toughest question for you, maybe. I don't know. Right. Well, whether it would depend, uh, whether it result in Nocturne or not would depend a lot on things about the due process clause and the police power that are, uh, you know, largely ancillary to the project, I think, because if the worry is people will find what they want to find, if that's the worry, yeah. um, and that judges will systematically err in favor of satisfying their own biases, in some sense, that's surely true, but that's also true with sort of virtually any model of legal decision-making and indeed any model of finding out about the world at all. I mean, the, the joke that, you know, science advances one funeral at a time, uh, <laughs> you know, makes sense because we think that there are lots of motivations that go into even the, uh, even professional scientists whose job is to, you know, dispassionately discover stuff about the world. Right. Um, and so we, you know, shouldn't be surprised when it comes up sometimes in the context of judges who know that their decisions will have real consequences for real people. But what's funny is, you know, I never would have thought of Lochner as public enemy number one of the realists. Um, I, I always envisioned that, uh, and maybe it's just because it's so close to my academic specialty, but some of the doctrines surrounding legal entities, you know, think about uh, Cohen's paper on transcendental nonsense um, and the idea that the corporation is located in a particular state and how, you know, isn't this just all fiction? Isn't this all just sort of imaginary entities? And there's no point in trying to manipulate them better to just answer the social question of what's the best policy. And it strikes me that that finding law does have something to say against that because it is working within the world of all of the legal norms, of the artificial entities and artificial norms 
that law creates for us in the same way that etiquette rules and grammar rules are all arbitrary and artificial, but also serve uh, a number of really important purposes. So isn't the real worry then that the, the, the worry about the person who will do whatever they want, who can't commit to a program in good faith, so that, you know, a, a, if your understanding of what judges do is, it runs in the make law direction, or if your understanding runs in the find law direction, I mean, as you observe of Justice Holmes toward the end of the paper, you know, he's t- taking a pretty modest view of what judges should be about in a common law context. And, and he's also a principal advocate of the make, not find perspective, right? So, so it's like... Descriptively. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of like, you know, ju- and I'm sort of reminded of the Susanna Sherry and Dan Farber, you know, sort of judging as a craft. So what matters is like picking people who aren't maniacs, <laughs> like picking people who, who, to be judges, who will view what they do in a, in a pretty modest and incremental fashion, who... Uh, appreciate the importance of writing explanations for the decisions that they make that will try to fit what they're doing here in a body of existing conversations or decisions about what people have done in the past, uh, both in similar circumstances and in quite different circumstances. I mean, I guess it's motivating me to ask you, like, if 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 you're right that uh, finding law is is uh, maybe not just plausible, but but a, a good way to think about what judges do. What do you think that says about ju- the judicial virtues? Like, who who should you be looking for if you want to set up a system where you tell judges that your job is to find the law, and that's a sensible thing for us to direct you to do? What sort of people should we be looking for to staff the courts? Is that does that make sense? Yes. So one one important feature of that though is that. Uh, as you said, your job is to find the law. The, the paper doesn't claim, and I think it would be really hard to claim, that that's all judges ever do. Um, any more than it would be possible to claim that sort of all scientists ever do is find out stuff about science. Uh, but the, the job of a judge is to find the law. And we can know that there's going to be an awful lot of falling down on the job and still maintain that as uh, the sort of normative ideal for the system. Right. And I'm trying to start with the premise that at least we know saying the saying your job is to find the law. You, you, uh, one way to read your paper is you're trying to make space for the assertion that's not gibberish. Yes. Like what I just directed them to do. So I'm with, so I'm trying to entertain that it's not gibberish. Um, that's the directive we're going to give you, uh, you know, humans, uh, being humans are imperfect. So even if they're trying really hard conscientiously to do this thing, which isn't gibberish to ask them to try to do, of course, they, they won't always succeed. But, but who, again, making it important to find people who are going to be good at it, what should they be like? Like what character or, or habits or, uh, or training should they have? So part of the training would be um, not just sort of training in the activity of finding law, but also being relatively well steeped uh, in the laws we have it. I mean, you know, if you want to have an expert who knows a lot about a particular group, it's good to have someone who is either a member or has lived with members for a very long time. So, you know, a lot of the things are things we already expect judges to do, which is to be longtime lawyers who, uh, you know, have taken a lot of cases and sort of know things or have studied it for a very long time or have taught it have sort of, you know, 
uh, imbued themselves in a particular cultural tradition for that purpose, uh, you know, to, to borrow a metaphor, like the question of hiring umpires for baseball, what sorts of qualities would you want in a person? Obviously, there are a lot of, uh, you know, relatively simple things like, you know, fair mindedness, you know, someone who's careful, someone who, you know, seems motivated to get things right. And then also questions of, uh, you know, sp more specific to the legal realm of someone who uh, is able to handle the kinds of unusual questions and the kinds of uncertainties that law can sometimes throw at you. Well, that, well, these sound like things you would want, you'd look for in the make person, not just the find person. Like the thing, the stuff you just described, I, I might say the very same thing if I had directed judges, your job is to make the law and to make it well, right? So what, what character would, would differentiate uh, what I would look for in the find regime versus the make regime? So I think that although all of these would be advantages in both regimes, the person in the make regime, I would care a lot more about their views of optimal social policy. <laughs> right. uh, I, would, I, I would also care about that in the find regime to the extent that when they err, it's going to be erring in the direction of things they think are good rather than bad. <laughs> but I would care about it much more in the same way that you know I'd care if I were hiring a congressman. I would want to know much more about their views of social policy. Uh, that would just be much more salient to me. Let me ask about, the, the, you mentioned the umpire. Mm -hmm. Would it be better to have an umpire who is who calls balls and strikes correctly, say 90% of the time, but does so in a split second, versus an umpire who is 99% correct, but takes a full 60 seconds each time to replay the image in his or her head, and, and, um, but gets it right a lot more? Which, which, which is the better umpire? I mean, to my mind, it would depend on uh, the pace of the game of baseball. Right, right. Well, that's... So, so what, in, yeah, what is this question? I well, mean, the, baseball the is already slow as hell. So what's the... Like, <laughs> my answer is, like, whatever makes this damn thing end sooner. But what, what, what's your... Like, why does that matter? Well, because there is... We, we have in baseball a criterion of correctness calling balls and strikes, right? I mean, it's uh, relatively rule-like. It's not perfectly rule-like the more you get into it. But it is relatively rule-like. And so to, to know what kind of person you want in that role and their capabilities, you have to know a little bit more about the normative enterprise of baseball, right? And the normative enterprise of baseball, when you start to think about correctness, it, like your view of that kind of changes, right? In other words, you're... In terms it, of how you're going to do this trade -off. It's a more complicated enterprise than you thought. Like the, the perfect baseball game is not the one where every ball and strike is called perfectly. Right. right. Although it's the most entertaining. Although one. what the person's obviously going to tell you is, look, I want the person who gets it 99% right in a second. Sure. Obviously. Sure. But right. that may not be your, your choice. Right. And so your question is about the trade-offs. Like it, which are you, right. which do you care more about when you have to choose between them? Right. And actually, once you think of it that way, which is the right call? The call made in a second, which is outside of the strike zone, but which is called a strike or the call, which takes 60 seconds, but which is called within the strike zone. Like what does it mean to be correct in that instance? And then furthermore, what if in, you know, in a certain year we have been kind of going along, we've been happy with our, say, five-second calls, and the next year television comes around and football becomes very popular because it's more of a TV game than a, than a radio game. And suddenly maybe our notion of like how fast this should go changes a little bit because people are watching it on TV. And does so I might be willing to let the error bar get a little bigger if I can get this thing done much faster. You might think it's a better game if you look at it that way. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm just wondering if our, our, if our law is at all like that, or, or if I have the description of baseball correctly, or if you see it differently, Stephen. 
So I'm sure that there are other things that would go into the selection of a judge. And you, I'm trying to think of what other negatives a judge could have. One of the, the distinctions is worth drawing is between whether this person will do a good job as judge and whether their rulings are legally correct. Because you can imagine features of the umpire. So let's say that you have an umpire who's you know, 100% correct, but they're also 27 feet tall and no one can see behind them. Um, <laughs> That would make them a worse umpire to have in the game of baseball, but it wouldn't change the fact that their rulings are indeed the correct rulings for baseball. To my mind, the other features of all sorts of legal officials, you know, we want policemen to make correct legal judgments. We want nurses to make correct legal judgments, even though they're not government officers. Um, you know, we want lots of people to be able to make correct legal judgments when the circumstances call for it. And there are many other features of the jobs that are also important. So I think I, I, I'm not sure I have a view on all of the different things that judges do, you know, being sort of having decorum, being uh, kind to litigants and, you know, uh, counsel. And so all the different things that would lead us to say that person, you know, she is a good judge and how that trades off to with the legal correctness of the rulings. Clearly, in some sense, being legally correct is what we hire the judges for, but we also know that there are lots of other things that go into the actual practice of the job. Yeah, and what I'm kind of uh, wondering about is this notion of legal correctness. I mean, it's certainly what's motivated me in my work to think about like what, what, what it means to say someone is wrong or right about the law. I mean, we... As, as lawyers and as law profs, and especially on law, law prof Twitter, it seems people throw out this, well, this is wrong, this is right all the time. And it's always, you know, this is maybe what restrains me sometimes is I just don't, I don't, I don't know. We like what makes something right or wrong is itself a, a further question. So and it's funny, I've gotten much less, and I'm aware, um, I, it, it, it occurred to me at some point, I, I sort of noticed, like, I'm actually a lot less comfortable saying that than I used to be about legal outcomes, the, the right, wrong label. It just struck me as like, what? Is that something within you or have I browbeat you? <laughs> no, it was in, within me. Because um, maybe the, Stephen would bolster this thing that was in you before that I browbeat out of you. I don't no, know. no, no, it's a, it, no. It's just part of, well, partly I just think it's like the, the way that aging, it just turns everything into this gray goo. <laughs> um, but um, but, but uh, more than that, it's, it's uh, that seeing how difficult these j judgments really are Right. How how often, at least in the in the work of appellate courts, that gets noticed. Right. And maybe it's that this is just the stuff that's salient. Right. Is the stuff that's hard all around. And so you can really understand if you give your mind a, a minute to, to, to allow you, yourself to see it. Right. You could say, oh, my gosh, there really are great arguments on both sides here. Uh, this is actually kind of tough. And maybe what's going on is that we're working out between us what we want to do now. That we find acceptable in light of these materials. But I think what Stephen is saying is something different that there is, let's take the Commerce Clause example. So there's, you know, the Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce, right? And other things. But let's just take interstate commerce. And the way I take your, uh, your, your idea, Stephen, is that there, there, that establishes some law, some real law. And judges' jobs in, in adjudicating whether uh, a congressional act is within the Commerce Clause involves trying to find. That, that real law, trying to find the law of, of the Commerce Clause. And over the years, uh, in the, you know, through the 19th century and early 20th century, judges tried to do that with all kinds of tests, and every one of them failed to be administrable in some way. There was the old direct-indirect distinction and a number of other distinctions. And 
after the Great Depression, these were basically abandoned, right? Famously abandoned and interstate commerce became, you know, widely opened up to something approaching uh, the police power, right? And it, there's been a retrenchment in the last 20 years. A, a mild retrenchment, I would say, a very mild retrenchment, but an effort to try to give some teeth to the limitations of regulating interstate commerce. What, what, so there, in other words, there are a bunch of as-if judgments, to use your language, Stephen, where, 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 where judge, the justices would create these tests, which were meant to be proxies for something like the real law of, of the Commerce Clause. Do you think that's a better description of what happened leading up to Wickard against Filburn, that, that you know, there was a recognition that these as-if tests were wrong, they were abandoned, wrong, abandoned? Or is there something about the Great Depression that caused society to, have a, to, to agree to have a different understanding about um, the, the national legislature's ability to solve national problems and to see this clause as a vehicle for doing that? I, I don't know. I, I know I've not said that very well, but I, I'm just wondering how you think of that evolution? Is it, is it a series of as-if judgments which were abandoned? And is there a real law of the Commerce Clause? Or how do you think about that? So two clarifications to start with. First of all, my, my paper is mostly about the question of unwritten laws yeah, as opposed yeah, to yeah, the, the meaning yeah. of, a, of an enacted clause like Commerce Clause. And second, you know, the, the claim, uh, the paper at least, is not that sort of this is the way the U.S. has traditionally done it, though, you know, that may turn out to be true. You know, certainly you could imagine a world where we've got some norm out there like the Commerce Clause. It's really hard to figure out how to apply it in various cases. Judges try creating various tests. None of those tests sort of they, they might stand in for the actual Commerce Clause in particular cases, but they're not seen as sort of replacing it or as, um, you know, uh, fully supplanting it. Um, and then they all seem unsatisfying for some reason or another. It's certainly true that there were a lot of people who thought that uh, plenary federal power was a good idea around the time of the Depression. It's not clear to me as a you know economic history matter whether that whether the Depression really has very much to do with the constraints on federal power beforehand or that it was really solved by the healthy exercise of federal power afterwards. Um, ben Bernanke gave a famous speech in which he said, we did it. Um, that the Depression was entirely the fault of the Federal Reserve. Um, and if they had uh, kept the money supply growing in a different way, then we wouldn't have had one, which suggests that that all of this may be epiphenomenal, if he's right about that. One thing I worry about is it's not clear to me that Wickard was not just another as-if test, in the sense that even today there are things that you cannot claim are the Commerce Clause. That was true even before Lopez, but certainly true after Lopez. I mean, one very interesting feature of the debate over the, the Affordable Care Act was that even the strongest voices in favor of the Act's constitutionality typically were not saying, oh, yes, and Lopez is also wrong. Mm -hmm. um, they were generally, there, there really is a plenary power here. There are some people who maintain that, but that, that wasn't the, the main view. Um, instead, it's that we've arrived at a much, much broader, but still not infinitely capacious um, test for what counts as a regulation of commerce among the several states. And it could well be that that the, uh, part of the reaction in Lopez and since is recognizing that, you know, that test also doesn't work very well. It might be administrable in the sense that, you know, the anything goes rules are pretty easy to administer, but doesn't satisfy the demands that we think a test intended to implement the actual Commerce Clause would have to satisfy. The fact that we haven't, you know, put in a plenary power amendment 
makes you know that there, there's that little sort of uh, grit in the teeth that the legal system has never really been able to overcome. And so maybe making as if tests that are you know sort of half a lope is kind of what we're fated to do. What is this phrase as if? Like when I heard Christian using it, I thought to myself, oh, he's not using it the way Stephen uses it. But but then you said it, which makes me feel like he was using it the way you use it, and now I'm confused. So what is what is that phrase supposed to be doing, and what is it helping me understand, as if notion? So the idea is to explain what have judges done when they render a decision that has impacts in future cases. And it has impacts in a constitutive way, not just it might end up persuading others and make fetch happen, but it actually, because that decision is there, their legal obligations are different. And the the the, the critique that it's meant to answer is judges make law all the time. Every time they render a decision, in the case between parties A and B, they have made the law of who owns Blackacre um, as between A and B. And so all of this is, is lawmaking. And the point that I'm trying to note is that, um, you know, it may well be that other legal rules give judges the ability to resolve individual cases vis-a-vis individual parties, but we don't see those decisions as necessarily supplanting the underlying legal considerations that went into them. If the jury determines that the light was red instead of green, that will be, uh, you know, that that will have a collateral estoppel effect in future cases raising that issue between those parties, but it doesn't mean that the light was actually red rather than green. And the same is true for decisions on legal topics. And, court- and more importantly, it doesn't license judgments in future cases that any time everyone's sure it was a red light, you can just say it was a green light, right? It doesn't yeah. license that kind of legal conclusion. So in a, pre- in a system with a rule of, of, of stare decisis and, and precedent, um, the, there are cases that have interpreted the Commerce Clause and applied it to particular fact scenarios, um, and, and that's distinct from the Commerce Clause itself. Yes. So what is the as-if work doing? We, we treat them as if they are a, a statement of the Commerce Clause's reality, but, but they're not that. They're just... But they're, revi- they're revisable, legitimately revisable, in a way that the underlying law is not, I think is the claim. Right. In the same way that the Eastern District of North Carolina has to act as if the Fourth Circuit knows what it's doing uh, when it talks about the Commerce Clause, um, right. it may completely disbelieve them, um, but it is legally charged to act as if the Fourth Circuit is right. And likewise, you could have a rule that subsequent Fourth Circuit panels are required to legally act as if the prior Fourth Circle panel, Fourth Circuit panel, actually got it right even if they think that's not the case. And the same way for, you know, horizontal star decisis within the Supreme Court, that it might, uh, you know, so long as that prior uh, precedent stands, future courts might have some obligation to act as if it got it right, without necessarily having to believe that they actually did, or having to think that that is the constitutional rule. And I suppose in a system where uh, one is one is of the view that things are found not made, that's you know, that's a lot less bananas than if you're in the system where you think things are just made, um, uh, that you would say, ah, yeah, we, we can revise it because there's this thing we're constantly trying to approximate. Um, yes. and, and we get closer or further, but there's a thing out there that we're trying to get to. If, if people are just making stuff, um, it, I guess there's not, a, there's not an as if, there's just an is. Right. If you thought that the Fourth Circuit really was laying down 
the law of, let's say, search and seizure doctrine within, you know, Virginia and Maryland and North and South Carolina, then and that the law of search and seizure really was different in Delaware. Right. Um, that, you know, then you'd have a very different picture of what's going on. Now, it's a little hard to reconcile that with our system, because as John Harrison once pointed out, the Supreme Court of Virginia also lays down the law of what constitutes search and seizure, and it doesn't have to agree with the Fourth Circuit. So, you know, it's a little unclear how thoroughgoing a, a, a making law view one can really take in our system. Yeah, Christian's got an answer for that problem. <laughs> no, well, well, I, I wanted to explore that. So uh, this is the reason I brought up the Commerce Clause thing. So I, I think there's a weak form of of the thesis that that it's possible to fi- to have a system involving finding and there's a strong form of that and the weak form is not very interesting the strong form is very interesting i think it's the one that you explore here but the the, the so you know it's totally possible to conceive of a legal system where where every decision is determinate in in the following way so suppose that the rule of decision in every dispute is the flip of a coin right so in that system like, you know, judges are completely bound by the flip of the coin and you can have interesting disputes about what kind of coin and who flips it and all that. But we could, you could imagine at least a system set up to resolve all disputes with a coin flip and it would be totally determinate. So it, it's not, it, it's not correct to say that any potential legal system is necessarily uh, indeterminate, um, at least at the level of primary rules once you've decided on that secondary rule. So, uh, in the same way, you know, if, if your claim is it is possible for uh, a, a social group to talk w- with one another in, in certain ways to resolve disputes uh, through finding rules that have already been laid down, of course that's possible, right? But, but it's also not a very interesting claim because uh, you could, you know, it's, it's just possible that people could talk in that way. The stronger form, and I think what you're pursuing here, is that it is possible in a legal culture like ours and with the kind of talk and rulemaking that we engage in to find law and uh, me- meaning that judges engage in a backward looking process to deduce to to to, appro- to to attempt to approximate what the real law is and it is possible to try to to engage in that approximation and that is the that's the trickier claim. It's the one that I think the realists are really responding to, that in a system like ours, with talk like ours and legal judgment like ours and institutions somewhat like ours, that that is actually not possible in a, in a large class of cases. Now, do, do I have that right? I mean, is, is, your, is your claim in this paper really the stronger one? I believe so, yes. Um, and, and so that's the one that I think the, the Commerce Clause story is addressed to. And I realize it, it's a written law, but it's, you know, I think we all recognize there's a kind of common law constitutional, uh, uh, you know, common law constitutionalism, which may be a series of as if in your language. A series speak of, for yourself. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah I think, uh, Christian, it's actually a very, I mean, n- n- knowing whether or not that's a, 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 good, a good vehicle for the conversation is actually like a big part of what the paper is trying to figure out. Well, uh, and, and so, yeah. so it really would make, I think it would be more helpful to Talk about some of these questions in the context of uh, of there being no written uh, there being no written source in in, right. an, in an obvious sense. I mean, but just if the to, only written source is that there's the commerce clause. So, you know, suppose we just have the law of negligence. Like that's that's the original law is that people who injure each other negligently are responsible for uh, for compensating for those injuries. Lots of stuff can flow from that, and there's a lot of common law lawmaking that flows from that original idea, right? Whether it's negligence per se, whether it's the um, race ipsa uh, uh, doctrine, you know, all kinds of stuff follows from that, from that original 
you know, it's, you can say it's unwritten, but I can easily write that down, right, in a restatement or something like that. And it doesn't, it doesn't make all the stuff that follows from reasoning using that original principle suddenly not common law anymore just because it was written down. The, the advantage of the, com- of the Commerce Clause is that it does help clearly separate what is the product of subsequent courts and what is the product of the underlying legal norm in a way that in the negligence case, the sort of make-fetch-happen effect of judicial decisions and the precedential effect of judicial decisions can sometimes be hard to distinguish from one another. Mm-hmm. Fair. And in the so, so just to give an example of the sort of thing I was thinking of um, to contrast with the Commerce Clause, right? So, um, you know, the famous uh, Sony against Universal case about whether it's copyright infringement for people to be taping uh, shows off the TV at home in the new VCR technology. Uh, and uh, and therefore, whether or assuming it is uh, infringement, uh, whether it Sony is indirectly liable for infringement uh, for selling people a machine with a record button, right? I mean, this is a pretty well known case. Um, uh, the Copyright Act, unlike the Patent Act, has no indirect liability provision. The, the Copyright Act just doesn't say anything about whether or not people can be indirectly liable for copyright infringement. Um, now, you know, time was when the Patent Act didn't say anything about it either. Back in the 1800s, mid 1800s, this famous circuit court case, uh, where, um, uh, the court holds that there can be indirect patent infringement, but that ultimately does get written into the Patent Act, right? And the Supreme Court in the Sony case says, I mean, it ultimately concludes that, the people at home who are taping are not direct infringers and therefore Sony is not indirectly infringing. But along the way, it says, well, of course we're going to use indirect infringement liability doctrines in copyright law because indirect liability suffuses the law. The the notions of indirect liability are things that that exist in all manner of branches of the law. So, you know, as if to say, and so reader, if you thought we weren't going to do it here, you're kind of being a goofball, right? And that gets really, really cashed out much more recently in MGM against Grokster, where the court holds that there is active inducement indirect liability in copyright law, and that the people who provide Grokster are liable, therefore, right? So it's, they're not just saying it along the way of not holding someone liable, ultimately. Um, so are they making, in a case like Sony, when the court holds that copyright law has indirect liability doctrines, notwithstanding the fact that the Copyright Act doesn't say a word about the subject, are they making law or finding it? I guess would be one way to try to figure out what's happening here. I would say that in a case like that, it is perfectly plausible that you could have a legal system where the court's job is to find law and it could arrive at that result by saying, hey, there are general doctrines of indirect liability and vicarious liability and things like that that are found all throughout, you know, anywhere there's got liability, we've got these doctrines there. And here there's a place with liability. So presumably absent other indication, they would apply too. this is the best way of taking the stuff that's already in the system and applying it to this particular new situation. Now, do you Uh, have to have some sort of adjutant rule, which tells you whether or not it's okay to do something like that in a context where there is a written thing, but that's silent about this topic? So I'm not sure if you need a separate adjunct rule. I mean, it's it's conceivable that you could you could conceive of it that way. But 
um, think of the way that common law defenses apply to new criminal statutes. We don't need a separate rule that says common law defenses apply to new criminal statutes. We just have Congress passing a new statute um, and we know, you know, they say it's unlawful to send live geese through the mail. And we know that a duress exception is going to be there, whether they said anything in the statute about duress or not. But it, and it would be an interesting argument, I guess, if a person came along and said, well, you know, look, in this federal statute, it actually does list duress as a defense. And so in every statute that doesn't, one could make the argument, look, Congress knows perfectly well how to list duress as a defense when it wants to, and it didn't here. And that would be that, that would be an interpretive claim about what, uh, you know, sort of what is being communicated by the statute that doesn't mention duress. Um, the point that I'm trying to make is that it's perfectly plausible for there to be doctrines that operate this way, that they're sort of around, they're in the water, um, they're there for, or they're on the shelf, they're there for use. And when you have a statute that says nothing about them, or you know, not even a statute, you have some other uh, legal norm that says nothing about them, they're still there and they're still applicable unless you have some affirmative indication that they're not. And it could be that we that our practice of writing criminal statutes develops in such a way that all of the exceptions are supposed to be listed. And so if it's not there, we assume it's not supposed to be there. But you could also have a practice of writing criminal statutes that's silent on that question, um, in which case, you know, things like the jury and things like indictment, you know, would still apply even if the statute says nothing about it, because those are handled by other areas of the law. When a, a court is trying to apply an unwritten rule in any of these contexts, it you know the, the argument of the paper is it's perfectly plausible to see its job as going out, looking around, seeing what the unwritten uh, norms on the table or on the shelf are, and applying them to this case as best it can, even if it might not have been previously done in that situation. So the first court that does it is not necessarily making a new rule. They might be following the rules that, you know, people who are not judges, you know, expert lawyers that you would bring that question to who are doing the same thing that the judges are doing, looking around and seeing what's on the shelf, uh, you know, would be doing in that case. Doesn't this suggest that one of the things that judges do when they, in a finding law system, at least a system that works like ours, is that judges also find rules about how to find law, right? In, a, in, a, in order to make the kinds of decisions that uh, that Joe refers to and that you refer to, that, that judges have to find the, the, the mechanisms of finding law. And if, in trying to do that, they end up in the situation that, the example I gave earlier about the, the uh, CEOs in, the, in Silicon Valley, some of whom are in suits and some of whom aren't, there's disagreement about that. So the secondary rules uh, governing finding are, in fact, in there are just uh, uh, different principles and different people adhere to different ones, then what does that say about the possibility in a system like ours of finding primary rules? It's not clear to me that in the system that I'm envisioning, even, even one that resembles ours, that the judges are uniquely doing that. Um, anybody who's trying to think through the problem of, hey, I've got a bunch of different conflicting norms here, let's say about indirect liability, you know, as it, as it might or might not apply to copyright. Um, if you go to a lawyer in, your off, in their office, they're going to say, hey, there are a bunch of different norms here that might apply. What's unique about the position of the judge is only the fact that their decision is the one that actually binds the parties. Right. And also that their decision is the one that might have stare decisis effect 
that some, you know, in the same way that some other rule of law of race judicata tells us we can't disturb it as between these parties, some other rule of law of stare decisis tells us we should act as if this is true until, you know, the, the conditions for overruling are met. You know, in a in a in a for the for the Holmesy and bad man, and also just for the practical lawyer, there are going to be a lot of reasons why you will look to the rulings of judges to tell you how to proceed from then on. And so there's that that sort of substantive sense in which one might say, you know, the judges make the law, or the law is what the judges say it is. But it's very important to figure out that that's a that's a very different sense than the sense in which the rules are structured or in which the rules are meant to be applied. In which the only interesting thing about the judge is that it, the, the judge's decision uh, that will actually turn out to have this additional norm that says it's authoritative, but not that it gets to override or supplant whatever the norm would have been otherwise. Is there any ge- level of generality at which um, you think it would it would be reasonable to say we've shifted from fine to make? Like, I guess I'm just wondering how much of the distinction might turn on the level of generality with which we describe a particular dispute or a particular holding. So it's perfectly possible that you could have a jurisdiction in which the judges are understood to make the law, um, in particular understood to make uh, unwritten law. It could well be that a whole lot of U.S. states right now are of that form, that we, there are, you know, states that just say our Supreme Court gets to announce new rules of common law, that's totally okay under our system, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, it might make some interesting due process problems or ex post facto problems if that's how they really, uh, you know, Rogers versus Tennessee might come out a different way if that's really, you know, the upfront way that they say what they're doing. But um, in theory, you could have a jurisdiction that would do that exactly what the conditions are for recognizing whether this is your system or whether it's a somewhat different system will depend on what it is you're supposed to be recognizing. And part of the project of the paper is to show that you can have something that looks a lot like our system in which the judge's job really is to find the law. And so the the ability to distinguish the two will have to look a lot more closely than people might have assumed who just say, you know, look at all these judges making important, you know, presidential decisions all over the place. Clearly, this is a judge's make law system, not a judge's find law system. It's amazing to me that we haven't yet really talked about uh, whether Erie's wrong. <laughs> it's like that's a whole, like that's a huge part of what the paper seems um, calculated to to try to uh, address. Yes. I mean, it it'd be a very different <laughs> paper if this if this paper never mentioned Erie or if it mentioned only in passing at the front. And, and said, you know, it's just a, it's one illustration of, of why there's, it could be thought to be something at stake in trying to figure out uh, whether talking about finding law is plausible. We just say, you know, over an hour into the podcast, what Erie is, right? We, we, we did a podcast about Erie because that we was your favorite case. talk about Erie all the time. This was your, this is your, one of your two favorite cases when you were instructed to, um, we, we each did an episode about our favorite case. Many you, years ago, and you, yeah. and you chose two, I think. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, so, so and Erie was one of them. Erie's the decision. And it which, wasn't my favorite because it's wrong. <laughs> that, you're you're, here. You mean, <laughs> no, you mean, you mean it, it wasn't, uh, the reason it was your favorite was not because it was wrong. Yeah, because it's not. It's not. So, so, <laughs> so this, this, is the, or this is the argument part of oral argument. I think Joe is going <laughs> to, Joe is going to come at you, Stephen, but, uh, Joe, Joe, tell us what Erie is real quick. Like in a, in a sentence, like what is Erie? Wow. So, uh, a federal court sitting in diversity 
uh, has to decide the case according to the substantive law of the state that's relevant to the case, not not come up with an independent general federal common law answer to the to the case. So when applying, you know, when, when there's a dispute where a, where a state law should govern, state law governs, and the job of the court is to find that state law rather than to find e- even if it's a federal law. court, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you think this is right, and Stephen thinks this is wrong. Is that right? Well, <laughs> I, I would actually say that, that that Erie stands for a slightly different proposition, which is that when a federal court is trying to apply state law, as it often has to do, the judgments of the the opinions of state courts are determinative of what state law is on all points. Right. And so I guess I described an instance where that is a federal, that's what a federal court's job is, is to decide a case using state law. Yes. And the the, the disagreement between, you know, Story and, and Brandeis is not whether they should be using state law, because both of them agree that that, you know, these are these are state law cases. They're not federal law cases. The question is, what is the law of the state on this topic? And is the decision of the state court determinative of that question? Excellent. You did a much better job summarizing it um, than I did. Um, and so one reason why I think it's right is because I think what Erie is principally trying to do is uh, adhere to a, a particular constitutional vision about the relationship between federal, the federal government and the state governments, and in particular, federal courts and state courts. And so it's no accident that it happens at a time when the Supreme Court is uh, withdrawing from uh, the most aggressive versions of substantive due process, the most aggressive versions of Commerce Clause adjudication, both of those being used to stop states from experimenting in various ways with various social policy problems, right? And that Erie is a third leg of that retrenchment and withdrawing from the field uh, of, of strong federal judicial bigfooting, to, to use a very loaded way to describe it, uh, bigfooting the states and stopping them from doing some stuff they want to try to do. And so the fact that they're in that the way the court is describing what it's doing, the taxicab case, and then Brandeis, and yeah, there's no brooding omnipresence. How silly we ever thought that, and yada yada. I'm not sure how important that all is um, to the uh, the fact that it the the court seemed animated by a, a constitutional vision rather than just trying to parse the rules of decision act. I think it does matter, um, and it matters to the way in which the court uses evidence from state practice. Because what Holmes and then later Brandeis are saying is that there is no breeding omnipresence, there's no such thing as uh, general federal common law, um, and uh, r- really there's no such thing as general law. Um, you know, it's a, a much more aggressive um, position. And so therefore, when a state makes reference to it, and when a state creates a, a court system, those courts have to be making state law. And so if we're charged to apply state law on a given question, we have to do what the state court says because the state constitution automatically is giving that court lawmaking powers. We don't need to investigate the content of the state constitution. We don't need to look to see how the state courts talk about the thing that they're doing. We don't need to know if Georgia thinks that it's only finding law, not making law, as you know, some have argued, even as the case today. Um, 
we don't need any of that evidence. We can just say the state courts have determined X. That is the state law on this question. And we can go from there. Yeah. And you laid that out very clearly the way that the, the um, Holmes's assertion that, oh, what state Supreme Courts are doing is making the law of that state. Um, uh, whenever, a, j- just by setting up a court system, you, that's tantamount to saying that, that uh, it's as if the legislature has written into the, you know, the organic act of their state courts, go, go make law. Um, that, that feeds directly into the notion of, well, when the rule of decision act says you've got to apply state law, that, well, there's, there's, you know, state courts make that every bit as much as legislatures do. Uh, therefore, in this case, we're going to uh, use the rule of Pennsylvania or whatever it happens to be. Um, but, but I think if you, if, you, if you step back and ask, like, what's at stake in the Rules of Decision Act to begin with? Um, you know, why is Congress giving the federal courts this directive to pay attention to what states are doing? And, and say, well, maybe there's some dispute about the real scope of state law. Does it cover only statutes? Does it cover both statutes and judicial decisions? Well, figuring out what to do if you think there's ambiguity there um, might turn on your sense of what the Constitution should tell federal courts about how they ought to approach the relationship they have to state courts. So that that's part and parcel of what's sort of animating, uh, you know, animating the case. So, for example, to put it maybe to come around at it from the other direction. I think if I think about the, what I take Erie to be saying about the nature of the of federal judicial power, if Congress passed a statute, the new Rules of Decision Act, that said um, that federal courts should always and to the greatest degree possible consider irrelevant and ignore anything states do to, to articulate state law. The the court the the court of Erie would say that's unconstitutional, wouldn't they? I am not sure about that because the constitutional portion of the Erie opinion is a little bit obscure, uh, <laughs> more than a little bit. <laughs> but um, I think that what's interesting is sort of whose toes would the would the court be step would Congress be stepping on if it did that? And I think the answer is. It would be stepping on the state constitution's toes, because if the state constitution wanted its courts to be able to comment on state law and to give, uh, you know, somewhat authoritative accounts of state law, Congress would be taking that choice away from them. There might be intermediate situations. So, for instance, uh, you know, one of the things that Story said was that when we have state decisions that are construing state statutes, we'll generally pay attention to them because we assume that the state courts know what they're talking about in that case. In a way that we don't necessarily assume that the state courts know what they're talking about if, for example, it's a conflicts case where they're applying the law of Japan. The state court, you know, what, it, what, what New York state courts think the law of Japan is they don't know any better than we do. Both of us agree that the state complex rule requires Japanese law to be applied to this particular case, but both of us are equally good at figuring out what that Japanese law is. The same is true if a state has left a particular topic up to general law, which is part of the common law of the various states, but is not uh, a sort of subfield of it. It's sort of incorporated by reference. It's a, you know, just like Japanese law would be. Um, and so if the state statute or the state custom says, go look for general law on this topic, the state 
court is not any better than we are at that. And that's a choice, the choice to look outside state customs and to look outside state statutes is a choice that the state has made. And so we are following that choice rather than steamrollering it by going and doing the best job we can to find out what the general rule is that they wanted to uh, so incorporate. So I think that the, the problem with the new rule of decision act that you're describing is that it doesn't defer to state courts on things that we think state courts actually know necessarily know something about, which is their own state statutes. I mean, think about how even in the federal system, if an issue of state law comes up, the Second Circuit will defer to the Sixth Circuit on a question of Ohio law rather than try and reconstruct the statute for itself, because just assumes, hey, the Sixth Circuit gets these cases. They know what they're talking about. We don't. Um, how much more so would they defer to an actual Ohio court, which gets these cases all the time, even if it doesn't have any official constitutive role of setting what Ohio state statutes are, even if it's really just interpreting them, it's just finding them and not making them. Um, and so the the worry with the with the new Rules of Decision Act is that it would take away that kind of deference. And that might be bad as a policy matter, whether or not it's unconstitutional. Hmm. Well, I have to say, last night I read this paper and I, I, like I said, I found it like challenging in, in parts, congenial in parts, and, and um, mind-bending in parts. I think it's a, just a super interesting paper. And the minute I finished it, I realized, boy, that, I should have read this a week ago so I could have read it three times before we talked to Stephen today. Because <laughs> uh, it, it feels like the kind of paper that you're just going to have to read several times to um, get a full grasp on. Yeah, that's why I wrote so much on my copy because I'm making notes for the next time I read it because mm -hmm. I because I agree with you that you know Stephen you a few times refer to Lord Mansfield as swashbuckling, <laughs> and so and so I'm wondering if you're related somehow distantly to Lord Mansfield because you are you're very swashbuckling in this paper. <laughs> you're sort of you're, you're like you're swinging from a rope on a tall mast and just you've got your sword in hand and you're slashing the air and it's kind of amazing. I, I'm distantly related to Holmes. Are you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And John Cougar Mellencamp. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I wonder if, 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 if he is, if Stephen, if you are distantly related to Mansfield and I'm distantly re related to Holmes, this could be like this, this could be a blood feud in the making. I, I, I think not. Uh, family <laughs> lore is that I am uh, distantly related to the first Jewish mayor of Glasgow, but I don't think that, that I get any closer to Mansfield than that. <laughs> That's pretty close. Um, I'm not distantly related to anyone of any importance or significance it's hard to imagine probably you know a very famous mill operator maybe you know what would be cool like if i were related to the person who owned the mill in, uh, in hadley against baxendale or something mm. like that that'd be pretty groovy <laughs> oh my gosh where where have we gone with this where uh, I, with I would most want to be related though distantly to to judge uh, justice brandeis i think that would be pretty snazzy huh huh well so Stephen, is there like, have we, is there any part of this that we haven't done? We're not going to cover the whole paper in, in we're not never going to do justice to the whole thing, which is kind of why I mentioned that I felt like I needed to read it more than once. But, yeah. but is there anything that we really should say that, that is key to your argument that is, is, um, that you feel it, like we haven't gotten yeah, to Yeah, we haven't gotten to and would, and would be a disservice to our listeners if we didn't. Well, it's hard to think offhand, but one question that, that might help in that is what were the parts that you found least convincing? So this is why I need to read it uh, again because there there are no particular parts. I thought the argument was was very well done. 
um, uh, I got, um, you know, I had to go back and read the as if part and, and think about that uh, a bit. My, my main, so just on the first general read, um, the kind of stuff I was pushing back with you on earlier, like what does it really mean to find? And I, and I, had, um, and I found myself thinking about what it, what it means to find a norm of etiquette in a particular situation. And, and is, that, um, is that distinct from the kind of caricature that people have of the formalists? Is, you know, does it mean that there is a real rule of etiquette? Is, there, is it possible to find the norm of etiquette without there actually being a real fixed norm of etiquette? And I, so, so that the, the verb find is the one that I kind of put a lot of, uh, that I want to think about more and I want to read the paper again to, to understand. Um, because I, I wonder if I, my, you know, my initial reaction is to kind of, is to disagree that, um, that law can be found without any element of making, um, that, you know, that it, it, it is to believe that actually every judgment is an act of kind of social construction, but that is, you know, I also believe a little bit in, in Dworkin's idea that there is a kind of, of constraint, part psychological, part conceptual that, that occurs. I, I, I'm not making a lot of sense, and I want to think about this a lot more, because um, uh, I, because I don't actually know how much your sense of, of find and mind or mind might be might be different. The the uh, question was what what is the part of the paper we might find le- least convincing? Was that the question? Yeah, well, to me, that was the question to me. I don't know if it was a question to you, Joe. Sure. <laughs> I mean, Stephen, did what I say make any sense? I mean, did you? I mean, yeah. No, how, would you, I, I, how would you disabuse so, me of my wrong notions? I guess. So, so I think I think what um, w- one area of similar pushback that I've gotten is with with respect to the analogies to language, and so people will say, um, you know, when you're looking at language, what does it mean to find a rule of language? There are all sorts of areas where it's very contested. Um, where people try to make up a rule and declare that it's a rule of grammar, um, that all of this stuff may have been made by someone at some point in the past that we have since forgotten. And I think the real difference between finding and making there is not so much sort of did it emerge, you know, uh, you know, full grown from the head of Zeus, uh, but more did this particular norm, whether it's of etiquette or of language or for anything else, is the reason that we adhere to it today because of some secondary norm where we are supposed to give effect to what Miss Manners says or what Strunk and White says, and that they just get to set our language on this topic? Or is it about a general practice that they might have good insight and information on? Um, and that they're sort of mainly uh, epistemic authorities. You know, an, an example would be right. the difference between Strunk and White and, say, the Académie Française, which get, which has secondary norms establishing its authority. If they say le email is not okay <laughs> in French, then it's not okay just by their declaration. Sort of the has secondary rules and officers and rules of adjudication and all the things that Hart thought you know might potentially be unique to legal systems. Um, and, uh, nonetheless, it's clearly, a, it, it's clearly a, a social non-legal practice. Um, but it, its rules are different from the way that, uh, norms that are just found might work precisely because they have this institutionally created constitutive feature. Um, so my answer to the question, what, what part of the paper might I have found less convincing, um, it's the top of page 57. Oh, very, very specific. Very specific. 
In fact, it's a sentence. Oh, boy. Um, if Erie was wrong on the theory, comma, then it's probably just wrong. <laughs> um, and, and I think I've already stated why. Um, because I think there's a, there's a constitutional uh, half of Erie that you really don't take on. Um, I don't think. Um, and it's the half where the engine is located. <laughs> so it's a really important half. Um, for what Erie is doing and why it's doing it. I, I agree. So this is where you and I disagree, Joe. I mean, I, mean, I don't disagree. Well, I disagree that, that Erie is an important part of this paper. I mean, I, I think oh, it's a good way to get oh, into the... Well, okay, I mean, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm looking at the paper he wrote, yeah. and, and it's a big part of the paper he wrote, and it's where it ends. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I'm it's taking a good it vehicle. on those terms. It's a good vehicle, but... I, you know, the, and, and it's 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 certainly part of my project that Erie be you know destroyed and the site sown with salt and Ichabod be written. Over <laughs> Joe is uh, actually placing his hand over his mouth. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I am I I did not know you were among the you know Erie Delengo est crowd. Um, but uh, okay, I I I think part of part of the reason that that I would differ on that point is. I see it not so much as a federal constitutional matter, but a state constitutional matter. My worry is that Erie takes the choice away from the state constitution, it, uh, whether it wants uh, courts as lawmakers or courts as law finders. I, I hear you, and I think, um, I think if I, it, it seems to me the uh, the net answer is always going to involve two parties, right? It's always going to be a function both of what the states say and what the feds say. And that for, for the Fed, given any Fed approach, I can figure out what the state would need to say to accomplish the objective you have in mind. So I, I just don't think it fences off something, although it might require that it be done in a particular manner. Um, uh, and, if I, and if I were convinced that it actually did legitimately 100% foreclose a, a state point of view about that issue, uh, that, yeah, that would be more would, concerning would you, to me. Would you guys agree? So I, I'm not like, I'm not up on this, but would you guys be in agreement if, 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 if the suggestion just is that before the federal court looks at state, cons- uh, at state Supreme Court opinions or state lower court opinions to find the law, that it first find the state's secondary rules about what is authoritative in the future? So if a state has a rule that the rulings of the Supreme Court are authoritative and you find that, then indeed you do what you do after Erie. But if they have a different rule, you don't do that? Like, are you guys in agreement? If it, is, is this just about whether or not prior that, to doing normal Erie, there should be a finding process for the state's secondary rules? That, that sounds about right to me. Joe, are you thinking? I am thinking. Um, because for me, an important part of the answer is... Uh, again, about the limit the Constitution places on federal court power to articulate um, state law. Yeah, but so, the, but part of the state law is that secondary rule about what is authoritative within the state. Yes, and and that's why I'm. I'm I mean, I, I think where I'm likely to wind up is 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 where Stephen did, which is that yeah, that sounds like if if that were part of the process, that would be salutary. And, and it's also significant that if you think of what the federal court is doing is as making law, then, of course, the questions of power are going to be really important. If you think of their job as finding law, then it's really less a question of power and more one of duty. Like It's their job to go out and see what the law on the topic is. Um, it's not that they have some 
sort of special commission over and above anybody else who would want to be interested in knowing what the law on that topic is. And it just so happens because this is a diversity case or some other head of federal jurisdiction that the questions come up in federal court instead of state court. Well, this is why I was asking you earlier about the qualifications or the character of judges that you might desire to pick, because even if you think they're finding, you might care a great deal about who you task to be the finder um, and, and the quality of the things they will find, the, the quality of their finding, excuse me. Um, so um, so I, I think it could still matter in that, in that sense. But, but we've taken a, a great deal of your time. And I know that we're going to have another 18 conversations about this that each last at least two hours. We say that a lot, but I really do feel like that. <laughs> that we say it a lot because it's true, right? It, it, it is a cliche on our show because it's true. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your, your very close read of the paper and your very kind words about it. Oh, it, it really was an awesome read and, and is something I'll be thinking about for a long time. So I, I appreciate it, Stephen.